Welcome to Women Who Walk. I'm Louise Ross, writer and author of Women Who Walk the Book, the inspiration for this podcast. And just as I did for the book, here, I'll be interviewing and unpacking the journeys of impressive, intrepid women who've made multiple international moves for work, for adventure, for love, for freedom, reminding us that women can do extraordinary things. You can find a transcript with pictures to each episode and my books on my website, louiseross.com. Hello, listeners. Welcome to episode 31 of Women Who Walk. This episode is the first in a series of interviews that I'm doing with women who've moved to Portugal and who are self-employed in the healing arts as holistic, alternative or non-medical practitioners. Several of the interviewees' reflections on setting up practices and building a client base in Portugal are insightful, particularly for listeners in the healing arts who might be considering a move to Portugal to practice. And of course, their personal stories of moving countries are, as with every guest I interview, inspiring. So my guest today is Alexandra Clark. Alexandra is Anglo-Brazilian. She grew up in Rio in a neighbourhood on the iconic Copacabana Beach in the freedom-loving 60s, later living near Ipanema Beach, made famous by the sultry bossa nova song The Girl from Ipanema. In 1968, Queen Elizabeth II was on a state visit to Brazil. She visited the British school that Alexandra attended and where the children, dressed in costumes, performed a short skit for the Queen. Alexandra subsequently presented Queen Elizabeth with a posy of flowers. In the transcript to this episode, there is an adorable picture of Alexandra, in costume, handing her posy to the young Queen Elizabeth. As a teen, she had her first international move and this was to her father's country, Scotland, a culture in extreme contrast to Brazil. There she attended boarding school, followed by university in England, where she studied Spanish. And with a scholarship to continue her Spanish language studies, she moved to Madrid. In the early 80s, she returned to Rio, but street crime was escalating and it was becoming an increasingly dangerous city in which to live. And so midway through the decade, she relocated to the US, where she spent the next 35 years. During that time, she pursued her lifelong interest in holistic health, energy work and personal growth. Combining this with a master's in counselling, she eventually grew a successful holistic healing practice in Denver, Colorado. Her own struggles with Lyme disease, resulting from infected tick bites, led her to the work of Dr. Isaac Goyce Duran, a medical surgeon from Mexico, who in 1988 discovered biomagnetism. This he evolved into a treatment modality known as biomagnetic pair therapy. Alexandra's Lyme disease was successfully treated using biomagnetic pair therapy and as a result she trained with Dr. Goyce's son, 
adding this treatment modality to her own practice. And then in 2020, unable to see and treat clients due to the pandemic, she folded her life in the US and moved to Portugal, taking a sabbatical while considering what next. Welcome, Alexandra. Listeners will be aware of your very British accent, but you were born and grew up in Rio in Brazil. There's a story there. So can you tell us a bit about it? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. There's definitely a story there on both sides of my family, both uh, my father's and my mother's side of the family moved from their countries of origin. My father was a young man in Dundee, Scotland, which is where he was from, post-World War II. He and his best friend decided that they would seek adventures elsewhere. And they got on the Highland Princess to go to Rio. They were actually told to study Spanish. When they got there, they realized it was Portuguese. They both landed in Rio. My father eventually started working for a multinational and uh, met my mother in Sao Paulo and stayed in Brazil, gosh, for at least 30 years until 1985 when he retired, he went back to Scotland. My mother's side of the family, her parents were French and Welsh. My grandmother, my French grandmother's family was not terribly happy that she had married this Protestant middle-class Welshman and fell madly in love with him. They were not very encouraging, so the couple eventually left France and moved to Argentina, and then eventually to Brazil, where most of my uncles and aunts were born, and eventually they sort of spread out throughout the world. So your mother was already in Brazil when your father met her? Yeah, my mother was actually born in Brazil. She was born in Sao Paulo. Right, right. Mm -hmm. We're going to get there because you grew up in Rio, but you ultimately went to to boarding school. Did your mother also um, go to boarding school or was she raised in Brazil? She went to school in Argentina because that's where she was um, when she was younger. And then eventually she went to school in Switzerland for a short time when she was older, which was sort of a finishing school. So she lived in Brazil most of her life, actually. Would you say that she was very much culturally Brazilian or was she bicultural British Brazilian? Well, all of us are bicultural. I mean, I don't think, even though she loved Brazil, I don't think she could ever claim that she was genetically Brazilian. I mean, we are what what we call Anglo-Brazilian, which really means that we don't belong in either culture, but it defines us. I've actually never heard that term till you brought it up in conversation one day, but it certainly describes accurately your, your heritage and your, your mother's heritage. Mm-hmm. Just backtracking slightly, you said that your father and a friend of his set off for adventure on, the, what was it, the princess? The Highland was a princess. Sh- Highland princess. <laughs> was, that, was that a ship? That was a ship, yeah. Okay, because mm-hmm. that's how they uh, travelled in those yeah, yeah. days. Yeah, yeah. That was in the early 50s. I see, I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And so what are some of your vivid memories of, of Rio as a child, uh, perhaps the neighbourhood where you grew up, the culture, the beach lifestyle and so on, and perhaps what it was like for you as a freckled redhead <laughs> in the land of sun and sun? Yeah. Well, I grew up in a, in a neighbourhood called Lemi, which is at the very end of Copacabana, which was really idyllic in the 60s. It was really beautiful. It was before Rio became really dangerous. I went to the British School of Rio, as many of my friends did. To that extent, we were not Brazilian at all. We were really British, <laughs> more British than the British abroad. In some ways, I didn't fit in to any degree. I mean, there I was, uh, as you say, a redhead with freckles. I used to get sunstroke quite often. This was before the advent of sunblock. And I didn't fit in, no, not at all, with those beautiful, bronzed, hedonistic Brazilians with their tangas going to the beach all the time. But at the same time, I had a very strong love of Brazil, I think, to the country. It's, it's almost, almost a spiritual tie of sorts. I love the sea. I just felt strongly connected to the earth and certainly would never call myself Brazilian. But as I say, I had a strong tie to Brazil. Mm. And you also mentioned that this was pre the really violent period that mm -hmm. Brazil experienced. And the, the beautiful song, The Girl from Ipan yeah, Ipanema. Yeah, Ipan Ipanema, because yeah. that's the area near where you live. Lemi is at the very end of Copacabana. And as, if you go sort of round the corner, you get into an area that is Ipanema and then Leblon, and then you sort of go around the corner again. But we actually lived in Ipanema towards the end of my time in Rio. And it's a really beautiful area. I've maybe read or perhaps uh, heard interviews with one of the guys that wrote that song, and it does sound like a beautiful time in Brazil, quite, mm. quite romantic, in mm -hmm, fact. Mm -hmm. and, and they based that song on a lovely young girl yes, they saw right. walking, walking down to the beach. Yeah. And that so was in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you, yeah, you were really fortunate to have mm -hmm. experienced mm -hmm. it during that time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then from Brazil, you, you go off to boarding school when you're 13 yeah. and to Scotland, which is part of your heritage on your father's side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so now these are two extremely different cultures, mm -hmm. Scotland and Brazil. <laughs> so talk us through this. How did you adjust? First of all, we had always gone on home leave every year to Scotland. And of course, as kids, we absolutely loved it. You know, it was the land of um, Smarties and Flakes 99s, which are the flakes that they put into the ice cream cones. We absolutely loved our time in Scotland. Smarties are like an M&M without the peanut on the inside, aren't they? <laughs> That's true, yeah. <laughs> um, of course, when I actually got to boarding school, it was quite a different matter. As you say, I went at the age of 13. I went to a very traditional girls' school, very little freedom. We could barely go out at all. We were dressed up in these ghastly tweed uniforms with school ties, a bit like Harry Potter. The local people used to call us the porridge army. Um, <laughs> and, of course, the school games were hockey and lacrosse in sub-zero temperatures. I, I found it very difficult. I found it very difficult to, to adapt. And I was not particularly interested in sports, which made it worse. It was not fun. It sounds like you went from freedom to a feeling of being very constrained and mm. confined. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, that there yeah was, that's mm. true. I mean, mm. I, we were going home for the holidays, which in a sense made it very difficult because, of course, when it was time to leave Rio, to go back to northeast Scotland, it was pretty tough, but mm -hmm. I managed to endure five years of it. 
Did you have contemporaries at the British school in uh, Rio that also went off to boarding school? Yes, because the British School of Rio at that time only went to the age of 13. So at that stage, the students either went to Britain to boarding school, and quite a few did, or they went to the American schools of Rio. I mean, we were prepared for this. We knew that it was going to happen. It was a tradition among a large part of the Anglo-Brazilian society in Rio that you would be sending your kids to boarding school at that age. Was it a significantly sized Anglo-Brazilian community? It, it was. It was pretty large. A lot of Brits had come over to Brazil to lay the railroads, to become involved with the railroads. So there were a lot of engineers and a lot of young bachelors came over post-war, as my father did. So there's quite a tradition of the British in Brazil. And then once you finished secondary school, you launched into your young adulthood with several country moves. Tell us a bit about these. Once I finished boarding school, I actually went to Bristol University in England and I read Spanish. I really enjoyed that time. I was already fluent in Portuguese. In retrospect, I'm not sure I should have studied Spanish, but it was a wonderful intellectual journey and a journey of growing up at that time. And it was only three years because in... Um, England, funnily enough, you can get an honours degree in three years, whereas in Scotland, you can get an honours degree in four years. Mm -hmm. So I got my degree in Bristol, which was really a lovely experience. I really enjoyed it. And then I won a scholarship and I went to Madrid for a year, did mm -hmm. some further studies there. Really enjoyed Spain. It was a wonderful balance for me, actually, between being in a Latin country, but in Europe. And then due to family pressures and constraints, I actually decided to go back to Brazil at that stage, which was not easy because I didn't fit in terribly well. I was working as a translator, as an ESL teacher, but Rio had become very dangerous at that stage. Hmm. So then how long did you stay in Rio? And Well, at, at one stage I went back to, to London to actually look for a job. I think it was probably about three years but unemployment in Britain was pretty bad at the time. So I had a few temporary jobs and then I decided to come back again. Then in 1985, my father retired and he'd always threatened that he would go back to, to Scotland after these many, many years in Brazil. And of course, all his friends told him, no, you won't go back after that long in Brazil, but he did. He bought a house um, across from the golf course because he was an avid golfer. At that stage, I wasn't going to stay in Brazil. Brazil was very dangerous, and I didn't feel particularly attached. So I went to the States. I went to the U.S. to get another bachelor's degree. How um, did you make that decision? I think in part I was influenced by my father because he worked for a big American multinational. He was a big admirer of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And clearly I was not really getting very far with my degree in Spanish. So I'd always loved psychology. So I went to the States and I managed to get a bachelor's in psychology in two years because my first degree in Spanish knocked out of a lot of the extra courses you have to do in the States. And I ended up in Virginia. And culturally, how did you fit in there? Did that feel like it would only be temporary or did it feel like home? It certainly didn't feel like home. I think it was probably one of my biggest cultural challenges because my whole life had been geared towards Europe, even though I'd been to the States. I'd been, I think, to New York and Atlanta. 
And I really didn't have much idea of how diverse the States was, nor did I really quite understand that I was ending up in the South. Mm. So it was a huge cultural challenge. But I did love my courses. I loved my courses in psychology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And while there you marry, you you have a son and and lots of personal changes during those years. Obviously, you're Mm -hmm. studying, graduating, marrying, uh, having a family. And as fate would have it, you end up in Colorado, which is where I lived for many years Uh, in Boulder, in fact, and so you were only 45 minutes yeah. away in Denver, but we didn't meet till you came to live here in Portugal during the early stages of the pandemic. And so I've just summed up about 20 years of your mm. life. Perhaps you can expand on some of the highlights of this period for us. As you say, I did get married. Um, I initially was not able to work or even to leave the country because I didn't have a green card, but eventually I was. And I started a master's degree program in counseling. My ambition was to work with internationals because I'd had quite a few issues with cultural adaptation. But in the small town in the south I lived in, there were no internationals, so that didn't happen. I, I was I was running the language lab in, in the local community college, so that kept me busy. And then eventually I had my son and then eventually got divorced. And um, at that time I got bitten by an infected tick. So I actually got Lyme's disease. Oh, yeah. And you which, got this in the south? Yes, the south has a lot of ticks. Oh, okay. Um, uh, yeah, masses and masses of ticks and Lyme's disease is not well recognized, it's not well diagnosed, and it's very difficult to treat. So, yes, and I'm only aware of it because it is also quite common in Colorado. Yes, mm-hmm. yes, it is quite common there. So it was a bit of a struggle. I was a single mother. I had absolutely no support. There was no one around really to help me. I was bringing up my son. I was quite impaired neurologically. That is one of the symptoms of Lyme disease, isn't it? It can be. Uh, Lyme disease can affect you in many different ways. One of the more common ways actually is arthritis, inflammatory, and so on. But other people can have completely different symptoms. I had a lot of fatigue and neurological symptoms. I tried a lot of different therapies that really didn't work. So I sort of struggled on. But I I got into holistic health work, holistic therapies, and was working with energy work to the extent that I could in Virginia. Because it wasn't really something that people turned to? No, no. Virginia is quite different from Colorado. And eventually I started working with end-of-life clients because I was fortunate enough that some of my energy work clients referred me to people who were terminally ill who were looking for that kind of work. So that was an incredible privilege. I would say it was one of the highlights of of those years in Virginia. You mentioned that you had your master's degree in counselling and you turned to holistic um, uh, practitioners yourself for support, but Mm -hmm. you said your energy work. So did you do some training in, was it Reiki? Yes, I took a lot of training in Healing Touch, the more accepted program in energy work which was actually developed by a nurse so I went up all the levels of healing touch and then I became a Reiki master and I did a lot of other courses in shamanism and all sorts of things and so I developed my own form of energy work 
And I was also working with flower remedies to address the emotional issues. My work was very rewarding to that extent. At this time in Virginia, you're then applying this uh, working with end-of-life clients. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, I see. And so then at what point do you move to Denver? I actually had a custody order in the south that bound me to within 30 miles of the small town in the south I lived in. And my mm-hmm. son, when I divorced, was only six. So there was a long, long time to go before he graduated. Eventually, he graduated in 2014. And I essentially looked at a map of the US and started eliminating areas. <laughs> and I ended up with Colorado, which I had been to. I had visited Denver with my son, and I thought it was a nice place. But it, was, it wasn't that I ever looked at it and thought, I'm going to move here but I sort of ended up with Colorado. And so I moved there by myself Mm -hmm. because my son had got into CU Boulder. Oh, okay. And the way things work in the States is that if you're an out-of-state student, you pay double what an Mm -hmm. in-state student would. And you can only be considered in-state once you've lived or your parents have lived there a year and a day. So I moved alone. And then eventually my son moved there and went to CU Boulder. I see. So you sort of paved the way for him to to be an in-state student, I Mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. Because my comment was going to be, it sounds as though there was a bit of a strategy behind your move to to Colorado. Yeah, I think there was also a lot of luck. I mean, of course, I had no way of knowing that I would really like Colorado, which ultimately I did. I thought Colorado was wonderful. I loved the openness of the people and very forward thinking, um, beautiful area, even though I'm not even a skier, which is usually the draw for Colorado. I love the healthy eating and the access to healthy foods and restaurants and so on. I was lucky enough when I got to Denver, I still had symptoms of Lyme's and I had been trying out all these different sorts of alternative therapies, which really didn't work. And when I got to Denver, I found a training just by chance. I think it was just desperation I decided I would do, which was the biomagnetic path training developed by Dr. Goyce, a Mexican MD who developed it. And I trained with his son, who is also an MD, Dr. David Goyce. Mm -hmm. And in the end, I did both levels because I wanted to treat myself. And I found that my symptoms were reversed. Can you tell us a bit about this? Because I'd never heard about this till we met and, and, and you attempted to explain it to me and then I went onto your website and I took a look and I read up a bit about Dr. Goyce, but it does involve magnets, but, but can you explain a little about it? Dr. Goyce uh, surmised that every parasite, bacteria, fungus and virus have negative and positive poles. And that if magnets are used always in pairs on the correct parts of the body, that those pathogens can be depolarized over time. Certainly it takes more than one session with um, diseases such as Lyme that can be very complicated. It can take quite a few sessions. But as you know, I mean, from treating you, (laughs) who've been a very good patient, uh, Mm -hmm. you can see results pretty quickly as well. It's a wonderful, wonderful therapy. And of course, I felt that since I had been helped so much, I really wanted to help other people with it. I set up a practice of my own in Denver and eventually had quite a few clients because a lot of people 
had Lyme, but biomagnetic pair therapy can also address many other things. Yeah. Well, in terms of disclosure, I, in fact, have been a patient of Alexandra's because I've been dealing with some issues as a result of mercury toxicity. And also in the way that you're a bit desperate with Lyme, I got to the point where I was a little desperate. And of course, conventional medicine doesn't understand mercury toxicity and has no treatment. But Mm -hmm. I found that the biomagnetic pair therapy has been helping enormously. Your career really did take off in Denver, and and it sounds like the reason for that is that um, perhaps Coloradans are particularly open to alternative healing modalities. Do you think that as a result of that you found your place as a healer practitioner in Colorado after these country moves that you had had and these in-state moves in in the U.S. as well that didn't necessarily accept Mm -hmm. or the work that you were trained to do? I think so. I think, as you say, it was a fortuitous combination of both having an audience there that needed my services and who were open to something that was really quite alternative. I loved my clients in Denver. I had a lot of younger clients and um, just enjoyed them so much. Yes, the other part of it was that I really enjoyed the environment. I enjoyed Denver, which is a small city that's really easy to get around, uh, is a really cultural city, has a great art museum and masses of movie theatres, which I love. I suppose really, yes, a combination of of those things that made it a, a really good place for me. What is surprising then, hearing you talk about Denver and your love of of Colorado is that you really shake things up. You decide to move to Portugal in 2020 and it was just when the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. So so what have you learned as a result of this move during a most unusual period of time in history? I suppose I've learned that sometimes life does shake you up, that circumstances change. I mean, COVID altogether was a huge shock for all of us. When COVID hit, I lost all my clients because I couldn't be with them. I couldn't touch them. Of course, yes. And so I lost my practice. My son had decided to move away from Colorado and I had suffered some grief in my life and I felt like I ended up with nothing. Hmm. So at that stage, I thought, well, maybe I should move to Portugal. It was almost as though you thought, I think I'm just going to jump Mm -hmm. and see what Right. right yeah I think sometimes you have to do that in life yeah and like many people who who did jump during the pandemic it, it wasn't easy I remember we, we connected very early on when you moved here but I vaguely recall that we couldn't even maintain the connection because we couldn't really get together I mean social life at that point was restricted mm-hmm. as a result of not being able to, to mm-hmm. get out of and uh, meet people. Mm -hmm. So it was a lonely time for a lot of people. It was Mm -hmm. certainly a lonely time for me. How was it for you? It was obviously a very difficult time to move. I moved in the middle of a pandemic, and we had, as you know, a very severe lockdown in Portugal, I think at the beginning of 21. I mean, there were three or four months there where we could almost not really leave the house. So it was difficult, but I think that... Everything you go through is sort of fodder for the mill. What's that expression? Um, Grist for the mill. Grist for the mill. And what I did realize is that I needed to be working. 
Mm -hmm. And that once I actually acquired some clients, it made a huge difference to me. Yes, it gives your life a sense of meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. Given you're building some clients and trying to build a life for yourself here, what do you see coming or what and where is next? I don't know. I'm trying not to make any rash decisions. I'm trying to wait and see what happens because I I actually think that post-COVID, especially given the economic climate in the world now, which I think is is largely sort of an after-tremor of COVID, things haven't really settled. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know whether I'll move back to Colorado or whether I'll try to remain in Europe. I, I just don't really know yet. My son is in the US and I'm very close to him. Obviously, that's a huge draw. But I don't want to make any any sudden decisions either before I really know what I'm doing. That sounds like a wise choice. One of the things that uh, strikes me is that as a British Brazilian who lived in the US, now living back in Europe, there's a sense of perhaps not being connected to one particular country. Am I accurate in that assessment of of your situation? Oh, yes, absolutely. When people sometimes ask me, where is home? That's really, really difficult to answer. That's impossible to answer. I mean, at the moment, I'm feeling very patriotic because of the Queen's Jubilee. At Uh the moment, I feel very British. (laughs) I would say certainly genetically, and in many ways, my heritage is primarily British, I'm certainly not American. I have American citizenship, which I appreciate. It's a very useful passport to have. But I certainly don't feel American, nor for that matter do I feel Brazilian. Sometimes it's really disconcerting. If anything, I guess I would say that I'm British, but I don't fit in in Britain either. And I think the British can tell that I'm not really British. Because my accent is actually a bit different. The British can't really place it. Yeah, you sound so British to me. Yeah, and, and the Americans think I'm so British. And yet when I used to go to Scotland, they would think I sounded American. So there you are. I've also seen your French family tree in your mm. apartment. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense you very much identify with that side of the family too. Yeah, I mean, it goes way back. Um, I would certainly love to go to France one day. And I feel that if I was immersed, maybe my French would come back, which would be interesting because my Portuguese came back after 35 years in the US never talking Portuguese. So that was exciting. As far as where do I identify or where is home, I've really come to the conclusion that home is where you make it, that I will never actually land in a place that I suddenly think this is home. It's a question of finding a place and thinking I can make my home here because the circumstances are right for me. Yes, I think there's some truth to that. In other words, I think I resonate with that too. Well, thank you, Alexandra. And if listeners would like to learn more about you and your work, where can they find you online? Yes, my website is www.biomagnetictherapydenver.com. Okay, terrific. I will put a link to your website in the transcript to this episode, which will be on my website. And thank you again. Thank Thank you. you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. So you don't miss future episodes, subscribe on your favorite podcast provider or on my YouTube channel, Women Who Walk Podcast. Also, feel free to connect with comments on Instagram, 
at Louise Ross Writer or Writer and Podcaster Louise Ross on Facebook or find me on LinkedIn. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, spread the word and tell your friends.